Help us, God, to move from the busyness and the hecticness and the worry and maybe the anxiety or stress of life, the questions and the confusion and the distractions, uh, to attentiveness to you, to attentiveness to your word. Help us to hear what you would have us hear, to see and know the things that you would have us see and know. Give us hearts that are inclined toward you and receptive soil for the planting of your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be received. If my words stray or deviate from your word, may they be washed away. We pray with hope and confidence in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're continuing our deep dive into the Gospel of Mark. We spent 10, chapter, 10 weeks in chapter 1. Last week we started chapter 2. Uh, we continue there this morning to bring you up to speed. Uh, Mark doesn't have a Christmas story in his Gospel. He begins with John the Baptist uh, as an adult, uh, talking about John the Baptist out in the wilderness, calling people to himself, calling people to repent, uh, preaching and baptizing them. Uh, for the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, Jesus makes his way out into the desert. It's the first that we have heard of him. Jesus, too, presents himself to John the Baptist, asking to be baptized. John is reluctant, but John eventually relents. Baptizes Jesus. A voice uh, comes down, is heard from heaven as Jesus sees a dove descending, uh, representing God's spirit. Uh, A voice is heard that says, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. I love you. Jesus immediately is led by that same spirit out into a different wilderness, a lonely place, a desolate place where for 40 days or so he is tempted by the, desert, by the devil, by the evil one, never giving in to that temptation. Immediately, Mark tells us, after that, Jesus begins to preach, proclaim, announce the kingdom of God is here. Now is the time. Believe the good news. Repent. The kingdom is available and accessible to you. Immediately then, Mark tells us again, he loves the word immediately. Jesus begins calling to himself disciples. uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And then there's an instance where in a synagogue in Capernaum, north of Galilee, around the lake, Jesus begins to preach, and he preaches with authority, and he casts out a demon who surfaces, and Jesus heals, and we're told that he does that with authority, and Jesus does all kinds of things continually with authority, making people clean according to the law of Moses, who were not clean before. Jesus then forgives, we read last week, and he does so because he has the authority to forgive. He heals a man who's a paralytic, who's paralyzed, who can't walk. And he says, so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. We talked last week about that story, about how as uh, children in Sunday school, maybe we, and I put this to the test in my own family this week, and it sort of proved to be true, that when we were children, we remember hearing the story of the man being lowered through the roof from uh, chapter 2 of Mark's gospel, verses 1 through 12 that we read last week, and that Jesus healed that man, and that he walked out, came in through the roof on a mat, walked out on his own two feet through the door. And what we remember as children and in our simplest forms is that Jesus healed the man. 
But when we looked uh, a little bit more deeply last week, we saw that the point of the passage wasn't so much that Jesus healed another person, but that he had the authority to forgive and that he had the intent and the will and the desire to forgive people their sins in a very general, broad sense. And that what was, is what was most important to Jesus. He had the authority to forgive sins and he forgave. He desired to do so. That was uh, the kind of Sunday school version of he was just healed and he walked out the door. We're going to look at another passage, the next passage in Mark's gospel this morning, where there's another Sunday school element to it, something that we may remember from our childhood about the passage that stood out, that we remember as the main thing, but what, which really wasn't and isn't the main thing. Another chance to go from a Sunday school understanding of the scriptures to what they really mean. So beginning at uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 13, picking up where we left off last week. Listen closely. This is God's word. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them, as was his custom. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many tax collectors and sinners who followed Jesus. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the children's Sunday school version of this goes like this. And I sort of went through on the internet and sort of picked out some of those cute character, caricatured cartoon pictures of Levi, the tax collector. Jesus was out walking and talking as he often did. He came upon a nice man named Levi who was just doing his nice job managing a toll booth. Just like the nice people who sit and manage the toll booths on the San Mateo Bridge and the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge. Doing their jobs, that's just what they were doing. Collecting fees, collecting a few dollars in order to keep the roads open for all of us. Great public service. Good civic duty. However, Levi wasn't just an ordinary guy doing an ordinary job. And so Jesus calling Levi to follow him wasn't just an ordinary call because tax collectors were special. Unlike agents and employees of the IRS today and in our world and context. It was totally different being a tax collector in that day, in that place, and in that context. In that day, in that place, in that context, tax collectors were special. There were different kinds of tax collectors. Rome had an elaborate and multi-layered tax system. Rome taxed people in lots of just different ways just as we are today. Property taxes, income taxes, sales taxes, various usage fees. And Rome thrived because of the many taxes that it laid upon the people throughout its empire. Land taxes and poll taxes were collected directly by the Romans, but the collection of taxes on transported goods and on roads was contracted out to local collectors, most of whom were ethnic Jews in the area where Jews lived. But probably not observant Jews, since Torah-conscious Jews could not be expected to transact any sort of business or financial transaction with Gentiles. And Levi was one of these middlemen who made bids in advance to collect taxes on behalf of Rome in a given area. 
His own profit came from what he could mulk from his constituents, and a portion of his receipts stayed in his own pockets. And so the Roman system of taxation, at least of roads and transport, depended on and assumed the quality of greed in a person. And it attracted enterprising individuals who were not averse at all or by any means to such questionable ethics. And so who were loathed and despised and hated by their own people. The Jewish writings, the Mishnah and the Talmud, which were admittedly written a little bit later than what we're reading here, but nevertheless, tell of scathing judgments of tax collectors lumping them together with thieves and robbers, murderers. A Jew who collected taxes on behalf of Rome was disqualified as a judge and even as a witness in court. No good, no integrity. Your word is worth nothing. They were expelled from the synagogues. They were a source of disgrace to their families. The touch of a tax collector rendered an entire household unclean. Jews were forbidden from receiving from tax collectors money, gifts, and even alms, charity by their fellow Jews because tax collectors were deemed unclean and their money was considered robbery or having been stolen. And so tax collectors who were Jewish, and Levi was a Jewish name, Levi was Jewish. So tax collectors who were Jewish were despised and hated by their fellow Jews, considered to be traitors and even worse, scum. But things get even worse as the story goes along. Like metastasizing cancer, this scandal explodes. Jesus joins Levi for dinner at Levi's house. Jesus may have invited himself over for dinner. But at that house and over dinner, there were many, Mark tells us, many tax collectors and sinners. The place was crawling with sin. And now it's not just Levi, but many tax collectors and sinners, or in the Old Testament words, the wicked who are not so much occasional transgressors of the Torah, we read in the Talmud, but those who stand fundamentally outside of it and who were categorically reprobate, some of whom were criminal, but others of whom were simply too busy, too poor, too ignorant, too careless to live up to the rules of the religious authorities, morally, legally, ethically, ceremonially unclean. They were dirty, disgusted, despised, offensive, pariahs, outcasts. Tax collectors were really, in every way, the bottom of the rung, the bottom of the totem pole, the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. And there was Jesus reclining at a table with them, fully engaged in this intimate act of table fellowship and eating with them which was almost a sacred act, or in this case to the scribes, a sacrilegious act, anathema. No self-respecting Jew would want a tax collector as a friend. No self-respecting Jewish teacher or rabbi would want a tax collector as a student. If a rabbi came to know that one of his students was a tax collector or that someone had come into his class who was a tax collector, he would literally do everything he could to rid 
himself of that person, to ban that person from his presence. And yet, Jesus does exactly the opposite. Jesus calls Levi. Now get this, here's where I forget in the Sunday school story about how exactly things happened. Because I remember from Sunday school and childhood that Jesus is walking along with his merry band. And everyone's having a good time and there's a lot of positive talk and a lot of excitement. And they walk by Levi and Levi just kind of goes, hey, this looks like a good time, a parade, a party. I think I'll join in and see where it's going. But that's not how it works. That's not how Mark tells it. Instead, Jesus looks him in the eyes and says to Levi, you, you, you come with me. You, you follow me. Learn from me. We can imagine that a tax collector might have had a difficult time even looking into the eyes of a righteous person, a rabbi, a teacher, someone like Jesus. Certainly, Levi had been around enough in the public square, and Jesus had been around Capernaum long enough for, for Levi to know the kind of person that Jesus was, upright in every way. And his shame must have been so deep because of who he was, because of what he'd done, because of what he'd chosen, because of how he had milked his fellow Jews, that one imagines that it was even difficult for him to look into the eyes of Jesus. But Jesus looks into his eyes and says, You, Levi, come with me. And that was just the beginning. Levi goes, Jesus invites himself over to Levi's house for a meal. And just as Jesus once healing someone and once casting a demon out of someone explodes into many, so now Jesus' invitation to a relationship with Levi explodes into a relationship with many tax collectors and sinners. And there's no hiding about this. It's out in public view. It's shameless by the world's standards. And the scribes and the Pharisees or the scribes of the Pharisees were literally scandalized, taken aback, offended. How could you do this? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's not so much a simple question as much as it's expressing disgust. They were incredulous, confused, perplexed, taken aback, offended. How could a rabbi who portrays himself as righteous do what he was doing? How? Why? How? Why? He was making himself unclean according to the Jewish law. How could someone who eventually accepts the title of Messiah and Son of God? There's a disconnect. For Jews, so much of being ceremonially clean and thus clean before God and able to attend synagogue and offer sacrifices at the temple was about proximity and distance, about keeping a certain distance from themselves and sin, themselves and dirtiness, themselves and God's judgment so that one could avoid becoming infected. The very first psalm, the very first verse, they all knew it. It's where you began in the Psalter, in the Jewish hymn book. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. That's their ethic. Stay away, keep a distance from dirtiness. 
that renders one unclean. But just as with the leper we read about in chapter 1 who didn't make Jesus unclean but who instead was made clean by Jesus, here again tax collectors and sinners do not make Jesus unclean but rather he makes them clean. The scribes of the Pharisees, the Jewish teachers of the religious law don't have a category for this. Their religion was based on law. Their religion was based on works. They had long since rejected any notion of grace if they'd ever even understood it. And that to them was Jesus' scandal. Jesus' system or Jesus' way threatens to bring down their whole religious structure and way of thinking, way of being, way of relating to God. Jesus' way was a hard sell for people steeped in a works-based religion, which sometimes is me, which sometimes may be you. Despite the fact that we understand the Scriptures, that they're there for us, as Paul wrote to the Romans, at just the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It shows up in all three of the synoptic gospels. There's not a lot that shows up in all three of the synoptic gospels. That saying of Jesus is one. And it introduces us to three truths or three takeaways, at least three. First, Jesus has nothing to do with those who cannot or who do not or who will not acknowledge their own sin, whose confidence is in their own righteousness or self-righteousness. Jesus literally has nothing to offer such people as long as, as with pride, they cling to the myth of no need for mercy. The Christian faith is not for people who believe they are good, but is for people who know that they are bad. Salvation is not for people who believe that they are all right, but for people who know that they need to be saved. The way of Jesus is not for people who think they are righteous on their own, but for people who hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not from themselves. That is why in baptism, the sacrament of initiation or entrance into Christ and the body of Christ, those who present themselves for baptism or who present children for baptism are asked to acknowledge and declare that they are sinners and in need of God's grace. And that is why communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist which is the sacrament of sustenance in Christ and with the body of Christ or the people of Christ or community of Christ. Those who step forward to receive such are asked to acknowledge and declare that they too are sinners and in need of God's grace as their only hope. The church is in danger of ceasing to be the church if or when we forget that Jesus has nothing to offer us unless we acknowledge our sin. Jesus has nothing to offer those who cannot, do not, or will not acknowledge their own sin. Second, Jesus' scandal of grace declares that no one, no one is beyond the reach of God's love. No one. A core principle of reformed, the reformed stream of Christianity or what's known to some and in some circles historically as Calvinism. After John Calvin who articulated it in the 1500s is that there's nothing in us, no good thing in us or about us that prompts God to choose us, that prompts God to call us, that prompts God to elect us, that makes us worthy or merit God calling us. That is holy from God and not at all something that we have merited. And so Jesus chose Levi to follow him. He chose to follow him the treasonous and despicable, money-hungry, ruthless, greedy, heartless, godless, betrayer of his own people, Levi, 
based on no goodness or righteousness of Levi's of his own. And Jesus calls to follow him today in the same way people who have sold their souls to things just as bad. Jesus calls today to himself to follow him. The likes of Aldrich Ames, Robert Hansen, Bradley Manning, Eric Snowden, who for some are heroes, but to others are traitors. He calls to himself, just like he's called you and me, Antifa activists, white supremacists, Black Lives Matter people, Blue Lives Matter people, people up and down the food chain from the right to the left. Many years ago in youth ministry, we used to sing this song with the kids, the students, the youth, uh, written, sung by uh, obscure Christian alternative rock folk country band named the Lost Dogs, and probably no one's ever heard of it. But the title of the song is Breathe Deep, the Breath of God, and the lyrics are super simple, and I'll read them to you. not going to sing them to you. Politicians, morticians, Philistines, homophobes, skinheads, deadheads, tax evaders, street kids, alcoholics, workaholics, wise guys, dimwits, blue collars, white collars, warmongers, peaceniks. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Suicidals, rock idols, shut-ins, dropouts, friendless, homeless, penniless, and depressed, presidents and residents, foreigners and aliens, dissidents and feminists, xenophobes and chauvinists. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Evolutionists, creationists, perverts, slumlords, deadbeats, athletes, Protestants, and Catholics, housewives, neophytes, pro-choice, pro-life, misogynists, monogamists, philanthropists, blacks and whites. Breathe deep, breathe deep the breath of God. Police, obese, lawyers and governments, sex offenders, tax collectors, war vets and rejects. Atheists and scientists, racists and sadists, biographers, photographers, artists and pornographers. Larry Flint. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Gays and lesbians, demagogues and thespians, the disabled, preachers, doctors and teachers, meat eaters, wife beaters, judges and juries, long hairs, no hairs, everybody, everywhere. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. I remember the church and the culture in which I was raised. And my mom, so good was my mom. She would uh, regularly buy for me and my younger brother these three-piece suits when we were little kids. And uh, clip-on ties. And we would wear those on Sunday mornings to worship. And the idea is that you put on your best for God, right? But we sort of understood, even as kids, or at least I did, that God actually sees us, knows us on the outside and the inside already. And so maybe we're putting on our best, not so much for God, but for other people. 
to look good, to look clean, to look like we've got it together, to look like we're righteous, to look like we're happy, healthy, well-adjusted, good citizens, good people. As if we could mask who and how we really were. I was part of a congregation that was reluctant to open up its doors in such a way that dirty people might come in. I don't know if you've ever been to Glide downtown for breakfast, lunch, or dinner seven days a week into one of their many kitchens or into their worship sanctuary auditorium space on a Sunday morning. There's a lot of dirty people, a lot of unclean people, a lot of people who don't have it together, a lot of people who look differently than we do. A lot of people who are clearly unrighteous by some people's standards, whose religion of works is just trash. Drag queens. I was looking at some photos from uh, our church, this church, and its history uh, this past week, and recalling the sort of in the black and white photos how everyone had all the men there dark suits and white shirts and narrow, dark ties, and everyone sort of looked the same and was clean and had their act together, and I wondered if a drag queen would be welcome in their midst. Jesus' scandal of grace declares that no one is beyond God's reach and God's love. No one. And then third and finally, Jesus' words to the scribes of the Pharisees call us to think about the church differently. To think differently about who makes up the church, about what the church can be like, about what the church should be like. About how we look at one another, about how we judge, about how we welcome, about how we... Think about what it means to be church, what it means to gather, what it means to be in community. Someone has once said that the church has wrongly understood its makeup, its identity, and instead of being a museum for saints, the church is or is supposed to be a hospital for sinners. We spent a lot of time on those banners we did this week about what do we want to put on the banners out front. We've got the Christmas Eve banner and the live stream banner and the general banner and we're making a Christmas for the community banner. What do we want to say? What's the most important thing we have to say to our community? And I thought, why don't we just put up a banner that says sinners welcome with a little caption underneath it that says that's us, that's all of us. Would that convey who we really understand ourselves to be? I don't know, but maybe. That's who we are. That's all we have to offer. That's the only people who are invited to call to follow Jesus, is sinners like us. In baptism, in communion, out there, in here. Some of us are afraid of exposing who and how we really are to one another. But Jesus already knows. He knows what the scribes were thinking. He knew in the last section that we read last week, he knows in this section. And so uh, 
whether or not we ever put up a banner that says sinners welcome, may that reside in the back of our head. May that as we think of people who continue to exploit other people in labor, in domestic certitude, in forced marriages, in forced criminality, in gangs, organ harvesting, child soldiers, sexual exploitation of many kinds. May we remember that they too are invited by Jesus specifically who looks into their eyes and says, you, follow me. I worry sometimes what people will think if there are people like that in the church. Or, because Mark doesn't tell us in Jesus' words that Jesus said, Luke, who's lit, written a little bit later on, adds that Jesus said, repent. But that's not in Mark and it's not in Matthew. And so our job is to invite people. Our job is to welcome people. In fisherman vocabulary, our job is to catch them. It's God's job to clean them. And we can lean that, leave that up to God and trust him. Let's pray together. God, we're not Levi. We're not that bad. We're not that despicable. At least in our own eyes. We are good in many ways. We have merit. We have been faithful. We have done what you've asked. We have followed. We have gone. We have been faithful. Ah, remind us, God, of the breadth and the depth of your grace. We have nothing to offer you, not a thing at all on our own and apart from you. No standing. We thank you that you love us just the same and you love us relentlessly as you did Levi, as you do the Levi's of the world. Help us to love such people instead of standing in judgment and disgust. To stand instead with hope. To offer to others the kingdom that you have offered to us and called us to invite to other people. You are so good. Your scandal is of grace. In that we take our hope, in that we find our place. Amen.